You're listening to the Accenture Insurance Influencers Podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Igrani Yu, and today I'm continuing my conversation with Lex Sokolin. When I spoke with Lex, he was still with Autonomous Research, a position that he has since moved on from, but I hope you'll still continue to enjoy this episode and the insights that he shares. In this episode, we get into the ethics of AI. What happens when algorithms and data intersect with humans and human bias? Thanks for joining us, Lex. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. You'd, you'd mentioned that AI is still, as an underlying technology, still has a lot of room to go. And one of the more interesting topics is this notion of discrimination and bias, especially as AI, as you said in discussing how it's different from automation, is often that you don't necessarily know what the outcome is going to be. And so, especially with something like insurance or within financial services, where the outcome can have material consequences on somebody's life, how does that discrimination and bias conversation come in? What is the responsibility of someone using AI to predict that or to correct that? I think there's now a robust discussion in the public sphere, even within politics today, you know, given all the stuff about propaganda bots and election issues um, and the ability to fake videos using um, deep, deep uh, learning, because of those issues and their impact on politics, now the problems around um, this technology are coming to light and being articulated by senators and, and folks from the House of Representatives. Uh, and that's an absolute positive that it's no longer 2015 where this was kind of an, an unknown. But the way you can kind of think about it is it, it's got to be very, very case specific. So let's say you have a company like uh, tractable where the AI is pointed uh, at damage that happens to windshields on cars or you know uh, other types of damage where you take the photo and then the data from that photo can be in real time or close-ish um, be associated with a dollar amount for how much it could cost to repair that and you know in easy cases that might be sufficient for the insurance company to, to just let it go through. Or you could look at something like aerobotics where, you know, you have drone footage of cropland and instead of sending out human beings to go and assess the different parts of the farmland to see what's been damaged, you, you take photos of it and you're able to say, okay, there's, there's water in this part of the, of the environment and it's you know, 3% of the overall stock and therefore this is, this is what the estimated impact would be. So in those cases you're not really in a place where there's an ethical issue. Uh, you might have something to say about the quality of the photo or um, having to pay for the data, but it's really fairly objective, non-social issues involved. If you switch now instead to um, looking at human beings and trying to analyze human beings and the data about human beings, and there's lots of examples where you can you can do that, whether it's um, something around, you know, alternative data that you put into your uh, underwriting process or whether it's trying to validate somebody's payment history or credit history, or even if it's something like scanning a passport photo, depending on the ethnicity of the, of the subject. As soon as you touch people as a data point, 
then you start thinking about these ethical issues and whether you're accidentally treating people as, a, as an instrument and not really thinking about them uh, as individuals. And why is that important? So to open up this example, you know, if you think about Google's image search, one of the things about the core capability of Google image search and the classifying that it does on, artif- on uh, the images using its um, neural networks, it's really, really good at telling apart dogs and cats. And it's silly, but a lot of people on the internet post pictures of dogs and cats. So there's lots and lots of data about that. And in fact, the machine in that case is better at telling apart different breeds of dogs than is humanly possible. So there's hundreds of different breeds of dogs. And so you can think of this machine trained on cats and dogs with lots and lots of specificity, seeing lots of variety and taking up lots of mental power on how one breed is different from another. And then in the same algorithm, there's a much smaller space for telling apart, you know, let's say various clothing or different historical landmarks, or even the differences between human beings. There's just less of that stuff for the thing to crawl. Um, And so where it might be really accurate in one place, it's going to be not very accurate in another place. And a recent study looked into this um, and found kind of the logic that I went through um, as it applied to pictures of white men, where it was really, really good at telling apart individuals who were uh, white and male, you know, with an error rate of something like two or three percent, which is uh, below the error rate of, of four or five percent, which humans humans make. So the machine is better than the human in that case. And then when you look at African Americans, the machine made errors of thirty percent because it just didn't have enough data to tell people apart. And there's a problem of, you know, the developer of the algorithm not thinking about having to expand the data set so that there can be more fidelity in terms of uh, being accurate with facial recognition on that. And so uh, imagine somebody trying to open an account using their phone. And so if you look one way, then your picture gets you the account open in five minutes. Uh, If you look another way, then you can't get access to the app because, you know, somebody else who sort of looks like you is on the platform. When you take that one step further into things like credit underwriting and digital lending, it gets much worse because you might have, you might be making decisions off of um, a postcode that is correlated with protected categories under American law. Um, And so you're inadvertently allowing the algorithm to make these decisions, which have a human bias into them. And what does that mean for developers and users of AI? There is no easy answer other than to expose the data for all of the different sort of ethical issues that we might encounter through the law in a, in the human society. And then the only way to do that is to fix the, the teams that are building the software, because you, you can't have a team that's not diverse, both in terms of ethnicity as well as uh, economic background. You can't have a team that's monolithic addressing these issues. So it kind of rolls back uh, of course, to human society and to the people building this stuff. Um, and that, I think, is is both a generational shift as well as an awareness shift. This is a fascinating discussion. We've talked about a lot of big ideas. How can incumbent insurers translate these big ideas into concrete action? One of the things about 
all of these trends is they still relate to human beings. Even if we're talking about the future and it sounds like the Terminator or Blade Runner, or, you know, your favorite science fiction movie, all the stuff that we've talked about is here today. And so when you think about it from an insurance perspective, you might have the kind of the intuition to say, oh, the biggest issue is that, you know, in China, insurance companies are also media companies and they also do chat. And so they're much better at grabbing consumers. Or you might say, you know, we're, we're worried about crypto and the automation of smart contracts and the fact that, you know, all the paper the insurers shuffle around is going to be now code. But I think that's focusing on the hammer. It's not focusing on the person holding the hammer. So if I can kind of stress one thing is that the most important thing for insurers to do is not to feel like they've swatted away an inconvenient uh, an inconvenient challenge from the insurtech industry. It's not that there is this one-time moment where you can co-opt a bunch of early-stage startups because that's just a symptom. We're in a moment where digitization is happening to the whole industry. And so the only real thing you can do is you know, change your beliefs about what's possible. So I think what we have to do and is at the senior management levels of these companies, be open-minded about what people are trying to accomplish, why they're trying to accomplish them, and what is the underlying trend that is manufacturing these outcomes. And so once you go through that process, I mean, it's just impossible to believe anything other than, you know, within 10 or 20 years, Everything is fully digital, delivered to your phone, is AI first, is powered by uh, various chains, whether they're public or private, uh, is consumer centric with you know, data owned by the consumer. I mean, this is a, a trivial observation because it's the only thing that can happen. So the question is, if you're running a large insurer, how do you get to that point without destroying shareholder value? Um, and then also by, by being a good player in the ecosystem and allow people to create value without co-opting it. And I think, you know, I would encourage incumbents to really think about being quick to address their legacy models. So if you have pools of, of revenue or there are parts of the business that you feel are really well protected, that's actually the thing you should probably throw in the pyre first, meaning you know, find the, the way to get that to be a digital first business. You know, one thing that comes to mind is um, the asset management fees that insurers are able to pay themselves because they're, you know, they're managing all of these premiums. These asset management fees are uh, three times greater than what you get in, you know, the open market on a robo-advisor, if not more. Um, and so, I think the, the incumbents that kind of really start from a place of understanding what the future looks like and then re-engineer themselves to be digital first, they're going to have a shot uh, at competing with the Asian tech companies as well as with the kind of fintech plus Silicon Valley combination that is getting stronger and stronger every year. Um, and I think... Um, you can't overstate the point because standing still is just massively destructive and creates fragility throughout the industry. So you know, hopefully that came through through some of the things I've said. And, and I hope that some of your listeners are um, you know, pushed to take that existential exploration for themselves. 
Thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today, Lex. This has been such an interesting conversation and I think a lot to learn, uh, regardless of whether you're a startup or an incumbent in the insurance field. Wonderful. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. That concludes my conversation with Lex Sokolin, previously of Autonomous Research. Thanks very much for listening. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe and tune in next time as we talk to Matthew Smith of the Coalition Against Insurance Fraud, where we'll be talking fraud, fraud detection, and what insurers can do to improve their fraud toolkits. You've been listening to the Accenture Insurance Influencers Podcast with your host, Igrani Yu. To find more episodes and to subscribe, visit Accenture.com slash insurance influencers.